0: Well, good morning and welcome to the Creek Church. It is still morning for like five more minutes. Uh, my name is Ryan and I am one of the pastors here at the Creek Church. Specifically, uh, I'm the campus pastor at our church in Williamsburg. But uh, I am honored to get to be here today and to continue uh, this series, this summer series we're in, this conversation uh, all about the story and the character of David. Now, you may not feel that way. Um, at this point in the summer, uh, you may be jack of it. You may be tired of it. You may be ready for another character, another story, just story anything else other than David. Uh, The good news is for you, uh, we are on the downward descent. All right. Next week, we're going to be wrapping up the story, the story of David. Uh, But I, for one, I've I've loved this. For one, it's my job to say that I love this. I'm a pastor. I have to say that I've enjoyed it. Uh, But all but, in in all seriousness, the story of David, it is so incredibly uh, complex. Uh, If you're not a Bible nerd, uh, you can tune out to this next part, but you shouldn't because it's interesting. Uh, The story of David, it's in a book that's what that's considered a book of the prophets, Uh, meaning that these guys who were prophets, they're the ones who wrote the story down, recorded the story, but we literally just like get the news. We just get the story. There's very little actual like moral commentary. So I don't know if you've noticed over the past few weeks and if it's bugged you like it's bugged me, uh, David takes a lot of wives, Um, like a lot of wives. I don't know why I'm of the the firm persuasion that, that one is more than enough for any man, amen? Wow. I was like, I gave that to you. Like, guys, you could have just looked at her and been like, "You're all I need. You're it. You're or or if we're being honest, you're all I can handle. You're it. Just just the one." Sorry, babe. Uh- <laughs> Yeah, he had a, a, lot, a lot of wives. He had a lot of not just wives, right? Uh, because some people look at that and they're like, well, that was just political. He was making alliances. He had lots of concubines. And if you don't want, know what a concubine is, ask somebody on your way out. Don't Google it. That's not safe. Uh, but, and there's only, there's only one, one reason for that. In the story of David, you know how many times David gets reprimanded for having those wives and those concubines? He doesn't. That's awkward. I don't know if that's awkward for you. Like we know that's not wise. We know that's not how it's supposed to be. But like the whole time I'm wanting somebody just to, can we just say it? Can we just like, can somebody go to David and be like, bro, this was bad. You should not be doing this. So it's, 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 it's complex. And because there's no, there's no moral cutting, cutting of things dry, because there is no black and white throughout it, lots of people, you can look at the story of David, you can take it and you can walk away thinking different things learning different things. It's like a cut gemstone, right? Depending on the light that you're looking at it under, you walk away learning something different. Now, the truth doesn't change, right? The, the, the story doesn't change, but you can walk away learning something different. And I love the complexity that comes, to, that comes with the story of David, but not just the complexity. Today, um, I am not excited about the story I get to, to, to share with you all, the story of David that we get to do, because today's story is all the drama, like, all of the drama. Think Riverdale, if you don't know what Riverdale is, think like Days of Our Lives, uh, mixed with a little bit of Outer Banks, you put in some Gossip Girl, maybe even a little bit Dawson's Creek. Like that is that is not just today in the story of David, that is the story of David. Like there is so much there. And even like in Days of Our Lives, characters die and then randomly come back. That actually happened in the story of David. I don't think we've talked about it, but you should. this is why you should read the Bible. Um, there's all these things that you didn't even know that that was in there. Now, because the story of David is so spicy, we'll say spicy, because the story of David is so spicy, there have been people who have tried to, to use that, right? Uh, in 2009, NBC uh, decided they were going to make a TV show uh, all around the life of David. Well, it was inspired by the life of David. It was the story of David, but in a modern setting. Some of you, maybe, maybe you, you remember this, it was called Kings. You can actually, they, they released the full season so you can go and you can see it. It, it aired on prime time. Like it was, it was pumped up, it was a big deal. And it only got two episodes in the prime time slot. Then it was mysteriously moved to Saturday, which apparently is not a great, for, great day for TV. I didn't know that. And then it was just canned altogether until summer. And then they brought it back and they finished up the first season and then it was done. Now people don't learn their lessons, especially when money is involved and you have such a great Spicy story. So uh, ABC decided they were going to try get try that very same thing. And in 2016, they didn't hide at all what they were trying to do. They released their show about the life of David, called "Of Kings and Prophets." Now you knew what you were getting with this. Like just looking at the picture, you have an oiled up back. They're not hiding. You know when you watch like this is this is the story of David's smut version. And both of this only aired like twice on TV, and then it was canceled because because ABC and NBC. They They were trying to appeal to church people, but they were also trying to to, to appeal to non-church people by making it spicy, right? Having people take their clothes off and all all of the things to try to entertain people. And the Christians saw that and they were like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not here for it. You don't do that with our David. That's not the way it works because we like our Bible characters as like saints. Like we want them cleaned up. All the while, it was that way. Like David was a messed up up individual all the wives all the concubines it really was that spicy it really was that it, it was. It, it happened. It happened that way. And that that's what we're going to be getting into today. So if you have a moment and want to pray for me, I would greatly appreciate it. Now, in the story of David, uh, we, we, we find David first, right? He's a kid. He's a shepherd for his family. Uh, he's neglected by his dad. And then he goes and he kills Goliath. It's a great story. Uh, and he becomes the next anointed king of Israel. And there's lots of adversity for David. And there's a lot of things that he has to overcome. And in that period of David's life, we see, a lot of noble, admirable things about David. And then he becomes the king. And when he becomes the king, he, he, his face was something that I call the burden of blessing. It's when you get all the things that you ever wanted. It's when you succeed. It's when you get the job. It's when you get the relationship. It's when you get all the stuff. And it's when it's seemingly everything is okay. Everything is good. And it's a, in reality, it's a trap. It's a burden. See, David, he's going to get all these things, right? He's going to be crowned the king. And then you just go down a few verses in 2 Samuel chapter five, he's literally crowned king. And the next thing he does is what? And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. As soon as he becomes the king, what does he want? Give me more. Why? Because I can and because I'm the king and because it sounds like fun and no one's going to tell me no. Nobody told him no. And so he, he does this thing. He gets more. And in doing so, we know he's setting himself up for failure. That what he's doing is not wise. What he's doing is not ideal. That what he's doing is going to harm himself and is gonna harm everyone else. And we talked about this specifically a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we, we, we fast forwarded in the story of David Because remember, one of the compelling things about the story of David is he's very human. So he is atrocious and he's awful and he does dumb things because he's human, he has flesh and bone. But then in the next breath, he'll he'll do something incredible. After David shores up his kingdom and he protects his kingdom from threats outside and threats inside, he, he looks at his advisors and he says, is there still anyone is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, right? The king that David, whose place David took, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And here we have this greedy, gross man who's making all of these mistakes that's going to harm and harm his future and his family's future, all of a sudden doing something what? Incredible. He's going and he's finding a man that should have been his enemy, that he should have hunted down strategically if he was being wise. But rather than hunting him down to pay him back, rather than going Rambo on him, rather than taking him out, what does he do? He takes this man named Mephibosheth and he shows him the same love that he experienced between himself and Jonathan. He shows him the same love and the same kindness, the same grace and the same mercy that he experienced from God. Because when we encounter that, right? When we encounter the grace and we encounter the mercy of God for those of us who are Jesus followers, it does something inside it does something inside to where there's this compulsion not that we have to do it but there's something inside of us that makes us because we've experienced the grace of God we've experienced the love of God now we've got to do something right you're overflowing with that and that has to go somewhere and that's what David does now, David's going to go and he's gonna continue to, to wage war and he's gonna continue to, to fight threats within and without of his kingdom, because that's what kings do. And he's gonna win a massive victory. And then after this victory, he's, that's where we pick up in our story today. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, if you want to follow along. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now David is the king. It's his job to lead his people. It's his job to lead his men into war. It's his job to protect his people from threats inside and from threats outside. But he just won a massive victory. He had just launched this massive military campaign. He's been on the run for most of his life from Saul. He's been betrayed by friends and he just kind of wants to take some time. He wants some R and R. He wants to kick back and enjoy being king and not have to go and when you're king, You can do that. Now, nobody ever looks at David and says that he's wrong for deciding not to go to battle. But we know, because we know the rest of the story that what David did by not going, by not working, by not going to war, by not doing what the king was supposed to do, we know it wasn't wise. That he should have gone, that he should have done, that he shouldn't have shirked his responsibility. And it reminds me of this old saying that I used to hear all the time growing up, that men are like old trucks. They drive better with a heavy load. Uh, an, another way of putting it, uh, I learned this one in college that idle hands are the devil's playthings. Maybe, maybe you've heard that line before. That, that, that we're better when, when we're working, we're better when, when there's the pressure, we're better when there's the responsibility, we're, we're better when we're striving, when we're doing, when we're, when we're moving forward, when we're creating, when we're making, rather than when we shirk our responsibility and decide not to. So David is gonna neglect to go to war. He's gonna send one of his generals in his stead and he's just gonna stay home and do what kings do. It's, it's, it's during this time period that he decides he's just gonna go for a walk through his palace, because that's what you do when you're the king. And one day he finds himself on the roof of said palace, looking out over his city, over Jerusalem, look what I've built, look what I did. And then he looks and there's this house next to him and there's this window just perfectly positioned and there's this, this woman. There's this chick, this gal, and most of us know the story, the story of David and Bathsheba. And he sees her. And remember, David has no filter, no lid on his appetites. He sees her and he says, I want that. David like ye. And so David sends somebody to go retrieve Bathsheba, bring her to the palace. And David and Bathsheba have an incredible time. Now, Bathsheba wasn't unmarried. She was actually married to a man named Jeriah who was actually on the front lines while David was at home with his wife, not at war. So they have an, an incredible time. And then not too long later, Bathsheba just comes knocking on the door. Remember me, girl next door, Bathsheba. Gonna have your baby. And so David, David goes into a full blown panic and he does what people do, right? Anytime you, your, 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 your bets are called, anytime you've thought that you've gotten away with something and you found out that you haven't, you go into containment mode, right? You want to try to fix the problem, fix the damage, contain everything, make sure the word doesn't get out. And so David sends to the front lines and he's like, hey, will you send Uriah back? You know, maybe if he goes and he can spend a night with his wife and then I'm out clear. I won't get caught. So he sends for Uriah, brings Uriah back. Uriah goes to King David and David's like, buddy, I know you've been working really hard and your wife's just been missing you. Why don't you go just, you know, just go have some time with her and we'll send you back later. And Uriah, Uriah looks at David and he's like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go be with my wife while my brothers in arms are off fighting a war. That's my responsibility. I should be there. Now I'm sure if you're Bathsheba, you're probably offended that your husband didn't take up that opportunity. But that, that's what he does. And we have this juxtaposition of David who should have been leading his men into battle, who should have been going to war, who should have been the king, right? But instead he decided to stay home and do whatever he wanted to do with whoever he wanted to do it with, and Uriah. Uriah, the noble man who refuses to accept the gift because he knows his responsibility is elsewhere. He refuses to go to his home, instead of preferring to sleep in the king's front door. And so then David realizes that since that plan didn't work. The only thing that he can do is to get rid of the only witness who could call him in Bathsheba a liar. So he sends Uriah back to the front line with a letter to give to the general. The general opens it up and it's a command from David saying, put Uriah where the fighting is the heaviest, the hardest, the worst, and then withdraw all the men from around him so that he's struck down. And so Uriah dies. And David, I imagine kicks back wipes his brow because he's gotten away with it. And then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan is a prophet. Prophets don't have fun jobs. The job of a prophet is literally to tell the truth. Uh, And we all know how fun that can be. Like surely you've probably had to look at somebody and say, that doesn't look good on you. You've had to have the conversation with the boss and give them the uncomfortable truth. You had to look at your child who you love so much and you had to dash their hopes and dreams when you told them singing just is not your thing, darling. I'm so sorry. Like it's not, that's not a fun job. And so the prophet's job was literally to go to the people in power and tell them the truth. Go to the people who with a word can have you killed and tell them the truth. And so that's what Nathan did. Nathan went to David. David thinking he's covered all of his bases, Uriah's dead, no one's gonna tell. As far as they know, Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. And he starts to tell David this story about this man who had some sheep and this greedy person came and stole the sheep. And David just gets enraged as he's hearing the story. Because there's just something inside of us. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. I have three kids, uh, three little girls, Emerson, Juliet, and Sophia Quinn. I call her Q. Um, she refers to herself as Quinn Quinn. You didn't need to know that, but now you know it. But there, there's something there's something about us as people. Whenever we see like our flaws in other people, it's like you see it magnified. So like whenever I see my flaws played out in my children, there's just something in me that absolutely rages. Am I the only one who does that? Like anytime you see your sin, but you see it in somebody else, there's this like visceral reaction. You just want to Stomp it out. You just want to get rid of it. And David, hearing this story about this man who had everything he could ever wanted, taking this one man's little sheep, he rages. He stands up and he was like, find me this man. That man deserves to be killed. He deserves death. And Nathan, I just imagine, is just standing there, just smug as a rug. Like, that's right. That's right. That's you. That's you, buddy. Like, you did that. And David shrinks back from his rage. And that's when Nathan says something that as I've read it and studied it over this past week, uh, it has boggled my mind. So this isn't the point of the sermon, but this will be fun for you at lunch and dinner. This will be a fun thing for you to wrestle with. Nathan looks at David. Nathan looks at David and remember he's God's mouthpiece and says, for God, I gave you the palace. I gave you the kingdom. I gave you Saul's palace. I gave you Saul's wives, plural. I would have given you more if you only would have asked. It's like, seriously? Like if David would, David, like you didn't have to kill someone's husband. You didn't have to take someone else's wife. I would have given you all the wives, all the concubines. And I'm just like, seriously? Read it, it's there, I didn't write it. Don't get mad at me, all right? I'm just reporting what what these jokers wrote right here. And then he looks at David and he says, because you have done this thing, because you have taken what is not yours, you've tried to cover it up with murder, the sword will never depart from your house. Your your family will never find peace. There will never be peace. Not only that, but the sins that you've tried to do in private that you've tried to conceal, they're gonna be made public in your children. There will be division. There will be dysfunction with a capital D. And he pronounces this kind of curse. And and, and we read that and we get kind of uncomfortable, right? Like, why would God curse somebody? That doesn't sound like Jesus, right? That doesn't sound like the God that we know. But the reality is that curse is the direct result of David's choices, of his decision time and time again to accrue more wives, more concubines, to be selfish, to be greedy, to prioritize his own desires over those of other people to take no matter who it hurt and no matter who it cost and no matter who he had to hurt to get it. The real curses are the ones that we create ourselves. Nathan wasn't saying God's gonna do this to you. God didn't have to do it. David already did it to himself. So often we want to look up at the sky, right? Or we want to pray and we want to say, God, why would you do this to me? Like, why would you visit this upon me? Why am I experiencing this in my life? Why am I experiencing this in my marriage? Why am I experiencing this in my job, in my faith? Why this crisis? Nine times out of 10, look in the mirror and you see the culprit. We are our own worst enemy. We created the curse. God didn't have to visit that upon us. We do that ourselves for free. And then David's gonna learn, as the story is gonna tell, that our actions affect not only our stories, but the stories of those around us. It wasn't just him and Bathsheba that had to pay the price because of their sin, but now it was his kids. And not just his kids, but now it was his entire kingdom and all of his people. From there, the story is gonna go on and David and Bathsheba, they're gonna be married. He's gonna make a somewhat honest woman out of her and they're gonna have a son, Solomon, who's gonna go on to become the next king of Israel David's forces are gonna continue to win on the, on the front. And he, he, I imagine he's gonna sit back and he's gonna think the words of the prophet are moot. It's not true. I can do what I want and I can get away with it. That pastor man was wrong. Those people with their sage wise advice, I can do whatever I want. That doesn't have to be my experience. I am the exception. What they said, that's old news. That's not true. It's from an old book. It doesn't apply anymore. It's a new world. You can do things differently. And I imagine he thought to himself that Nathan was wrong, that there was no curse, that he had dealt with and he had already felt the burn of his actions and of his sin, but boy, was he wrong. The story goes on in the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 13, and it picks up with a character named Absalom, David's son. Now Absalom, he's, he's attractive, right? Apparently, attractive parents make attractive kids. Um, David was known for his his appearance and his beauty. Absalom is gonna also be known as somebody who's handsome, who's nice to look at. He's known for his long hair. Once a year, he made it a thing. He would go out into the public forum and they would trim his hair. And it was a big spectacle, I don't know why. Um, But it was, that's what Absalom was known for, his long, luscious locks. And of course, he has a really attractive sister, right? A beautiful sister, as the Bible puts it, whose name was Tamar. There's Absalom, there's Tamar, and there's another son of David, a boy by the name of Amnon. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And we're gonna find out very quickly just what kind of love this is. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Like this was like grotesque, twisted, like puppy love, you know, it's the kind where like you're writing your name and with their last name at the end of it, it's the kind of like, I I just love them so much. I just, I can't eat. I can't sleep. Like this is like that high school stuff. Like this is that infatuation level kind of stuff. And Amnon's literally just like making himself sick because he's in love with his half-sister. Didn't make it up. It's there. It is, it is what it is. And so he's going to pine away after. That's, that's how the scriptures puts it. It's so much so that it's going to become noticeable to a good friend of his that there's something wrong. So he's going to, a good friend's going to come up to Ammon and be like, buddy, what's going on? I can tell there's something wrong. And he's going to look and he's like, I just, I love her. I just love her. I love Tamar so much. And I just, I really, I just, I need, I, I have to have her. And so the friend looks and he's like, here's what you do. And so they hatch a plot. And so Amnon makes sure that he's like good and proper sick, or at least he looks good and proper sick. And the word of his illness, it spreads throughout the palace. And when David hears about it, he, he of course is gonna come and he's going to go to his son and he's gonna be like, Amnon, buddy, what do I need to do? Like I'll send for the prophet, I'll get the priest, we'll sacrifice a few extra bulls, whatever we gotta do to get you healthy. And Amnon's dad, just some good old home cooking. If you'll just send sis, just send Tamar. She makes these really yummy dumplings. I just, I just, I, I wanna, if she'll just make it for me and I can, I can eat that, that'll, that'll just do me right up, dad. And so David, David's gonna hear what Amnon says and he's basically going to become unknowingly, unwittingly his daughter's pimp. And he's going to go to Tamar and say, hey girl, I'm gonna need you to go fix your brother's favorite dumplings. Thank you. And so she goes and she, she begins to, to do this and create, make the dumplings. And it's happening in this like kind of outer chamber in Amnon's rooms and Amnon sends all the servants away. And he was like, why don't you come into my, my room and, and feed it to me? So he takes her into her, her room and that's when it becomes clear to Tamar what this really is. I'm not, this isn't, you know, I'm not making chicken soup for my brother's soul. He's, he's getting ready to do something that should not be done in the land of Israel. And that's literally what she says. She looks at him and he says, she says, this thing should not be done. Like we're God's people, this isn't what we do. If you would just ask dad, if you just ask him, ask the king, like we can do this the right way. We can do this the proper way, which isn't true. Even in Israel, this is not something that should have been done, but she was desperate. She was saying anything that that she could to get, keep her brother from doing this terrible, God-awful thing. But he refuses, he has his way with Tamar. And then when it's done, he looks at her and he's disgusted. Not with himself, but with her. Because what he had consen- convinced himself would be so incredibly good, once he got it, what he thought would be honey on the lips turned to ash in his mouth. And so he sent for the servants and had her thrown out, broken, used, ashamed. And so she ran to her big brother, to Absalom, who took her in, provided for her, and he stewed with anger and resentment towards his brother. Now, eventually word of this is gonna reach David. And the scriptures say, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Yeah, and he did nothing. That's all that he did. He felt, he felt anger and that's it. He did absolutely nothing. He heard about what his son did to his sister and he sat back on his throne. He crossed his legs and did nothing. How could he? He was was the king. Maybe, maybe I'm sure he had his excuses, right? We have ours. Why we don't deal with the things we're supposed to deal with. Maybe he was just, I'm, I'm tired. I have a kingdom to run. I have all these wives, I have all these concubines. I have all these kids. There's wars being waged and hungry people need fed. And there's this problem over here. I'm just, I'm honey, I'm, I'm just, I'm too tired. I'm not gonna deal with this. Like we'll just let the kids fight it out. I'm not, I'm not gonna deal with this one. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna chill here. I'm gonna scroll, scroll through my Instagram feed and we'll just let life go on. I'm just tired. I just can't, I can't handle one more thing. Or maybe he was just distracted, right? Had a new wife, had a new baby. Had, had all the other stuff happening. He was just, you know, had, had again, had a kingdom run. So he just had all these other things going on that, you know, I'll let somebody else deal with this, right? I'll let the kid's small group leader deal with this. I'll let the pastor deal with this. I'll let the prophet come in and deal with this. I'll let their moms hash it out. I'll let them fight it out amongst themselves. I just, I have other things, other obligations, and I'm, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to sacrifice my family on the altar of those things. Or maybe he realized, maybe he was smart. And he realized he'd actually vacated the moral high ground a long time ago, right? Like, who am I? How can I go to my kids and say, you shouldn't be doing this when literally my personal life is plastered all over the kingdom's papers. Like everybody knows what I have done. Like who am I to go to my kids and tell them what they should and shouldn't be doing in high school when everybody knows what I did in high school. Like who, who I, I, have, I have no, I can't stand on this platform. How, how, how could I? Like do people really expect me to use my scars and my bad stories as an example to help them live a better life? No, no, I vacated that moral high ground a long time ago. Or maybe some scholars, some scholars think he was just showing favoritism that he liked Amnon better than his other kids because Amnon was one of the heirs apparent to the kingdom. And because of that, he wasn't going to meet out the justice that Amnon deserved, which by the way, was marry her or death. And the story of David is going to remind us of something we all know because we've all experienced it. That when we do nothing, life drifts toward disorder. Life drifts toward chaos. It's entropy. It's not just for the science classroom. It's for life. When we do nothing in our marriage, what happens? It drifts. And the currents never move, never move us forward, but they always move us backward. They move us further out to sea, further towards danger, more into an area and in a domain where we don't have control of our lives anymore because we vacated that a long time ago. It's true for us as parents. When we don't do anything and we just let our children, parents themselves or their kids or their, their friends parent them and influence them, what happens? Chaos. Disorder, in our faith, when we're not striving and moving towards better, what are we moving towards? Backwards. It's true in your career, it's true in your health. If we're not gaining ground, you're not standing still because the tide is always running and it's always pulling us behind. David's son that he had with Bathsheba Solomon will become the next king and he'll create a book, a book we call Proverbs. It's a collection of all these wise sayings. And I just have to believe that, that he wrote this next bit because he saw this play out in his father's life. That he said, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. You do nothing, you do nothing, you'll lose everything. You do nothing, you're sacrificing it all anyways. Now, like I said, Absalom is going to stew with anger and he's going to plot. David, however, is gonna continue to do absolutely nothing. And so Absalom is going to throw a party, a barn raiser, a sheep shearing, if you will. Now, when you read this in the Bible, I know what it sounds like. Um, This is like, this is not just, they're not, not just getting together and like shearing sheep. They're like getting together. They're inviting some of dad's concubines. They have the drinks. Like this is, this is a party. And so Absalom's gonna throw this party not far away from the capital, but far away enough. And he's going to invite all of his brothers. And while they're there, he's gonna murder Amnon in cold blood. Daddy's not gonna do it, I'll do it. He's going to be absentee, then I'll deal with it. Because in the, when we vacate our authority, someone will fill it. When we vacate the roles that God's given us to, to be, the things that we are supposed to do, someone will come along and they will do it. And after Absalom does that, he's gonna flee. He's gonna go to his mother's country, which is outside of the borders of the kingdom of Israel so that David can't come after him, so that there will be no justice met out. And while he is gone, the courtiers and the people around David are gonna start to chirp and they're going to try to use Absalom's absence to maneuver and to curry favor. And one day there's gonna be a woman get in his ear and she's going to convince him to bring Absalom back. Why? Because he's still an heir. He's still a son. He did what you refused to do. He met out justice. Why don't you bring him back? Why don't you reconcile with him? And so David's convinced to allow Absalom to return. He comes back, but David still sits on his throne and still does nothing. Absalom comes into the city. David doesn't meet him. David doesn't reconcile with him. David David does nothing. He continues to be absent. He doesn't have the relationship with his son. He doesn't have the reconciliation with his son. He's not leading, he's not doing anything. He's still allowing other people to fight his battles for him. And so Absalom's gonna be fueled by his father's passivity. And he's going to march to Hebron, the same city where his father once declared himself the king and crowned. And Absalom is going to declare himself the king. And so much of the kingdom is gonna rally around him because David has been passive. David has been apathetic. David has done nothing and everyone else has seen it. They've not acted, but Absalom finally has the courage to do something. And that's when the kingdom's going to be torn in two in a civil war. And David's gonna finally realize the house is on fire as so often happens in our own lives, right? We don't realize something is wrong, something is broken, or at least we don't deal with it until the house is on fire, until there's a crisis, until it's gotten to a point where things are broken, people are hurt, and that's what shakes David from his slumber. And so he's going to flee the city because Absalom's armies are too great. His forces outnumber David's and he's gonna leave the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem because the last time they moved that, it didn't go so well, people died. And he's gonna leave 10 of his concubines in the city because he fully intends to come back one day. Absalom's gonna come and in the absence of his father in the city, he's gonna quickly take it. And then a friend's going to encourage him to set up a tent on the rooftop, that same rooftop where David once spied Bathsheba and to take his father's 10 concubines into that tent and to do before all of the kingdom what David did in private. And that's what happened. What David did in secret, his son did in public. You've maybe heard that, that, that saying, the sins of the father are the sins of the son, or the sins of the father are visited upon the son. It's crazy when that happens, isn't it? Like I've even noticed my kids, there are things that they will do they've never seen me do. There's little habits and tendencies that I had when I was their age that all of a sudden they'll start doing. And I'm like, where does this come from? They've literally never seen this. There's something something about sin. It's so much more than like this little three-letter word that pastors use. There's something dark to it. Like there's something toxic about it. There's something about it that it infects. There's something about it to where it distorts. There's something about it to where it's not even spoken, it's not even known, yet it taints, and it destroys, and it blackens. And now David is seeing in the light of day, the sins that he thought he was doing in private. He's seeing it all played out. Only the next generation took it further. Eventually they're both going to get their armies, the army of David and the army of Absalom. And they're gonna meet each other in battle. And David still, still the dad, warns his generals, warns his men, don't harm my son. I just want my son back. I've lost one already. The battle's not gonna go Absalom's way. He's gonna flee. And in his flight, his hair, remember those luscious locks? They're gonna get all tangled up in a tree, in a tenebeth tree. And he's gonna eventually be found just hanging there by his hair, fully alive. And when he's found, they're gonna send for the general, a man named Joab. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. David wins. David gets his kingdom back. When Saul and Jonathan died earlier in David's story, he composed a song of mourning. When his son dies, all he can say is Absalom. Oh, my Absalom, Absalom are the only things that he can bring himself to say as he mourns. And I imagine as he did, he took inventory. He remembered the words of the prophet, Nathan. And I imagine he tried to think and tried to figure out, how did I get here? I started out as that teenager who was anointed to be the next king, the king of God's people, God's chosen one. God was gonna use me to establish a house, a lineage that would never end, to bring about the king, the Messiah, the savior. And now my sons are dead. My kingdom's broken. How did he get here? And how can we not? He was the king and kings do what kings want. And few people tell them no. And he allowed himself to be passive and he allowed himself to isolate himself. And anytime we isolate, anytime we remove ourselves from accountability, from community, from the people who know our lives, that's when we begin to accrue secrets and we're only as sick as our secrets. See, isolation is the enemy of progress. And maybe if David had still had a Jonathan, Maybe if David had still had a community, maybe if David was still plugged in with other people, maybe if David hadn't sent all of his buddies off to war and he wasn't in the palace alone, maybe just maybe David's story would have worked out differently. That's how David got there. He didn't realize the burden of blessing He had worked so hard to get to where he wanted to be. He had worked so hard to become the king that when he got there, he didn't realize the trap that all of these wives, that all of these concubines, that all of his freedom was going to afford him. He didn't realize that more more blessing requires more responsibility. It requires more sacrifice. It requires more self-control. He had only ever learned, he'd only ever lived in adversity. He had never learned how to live in rule from the palace. And when he got it all, all the things he thought he wanted, it became his undoing. And then when it broke, there was apathy. Rather than do anything about it, he sat back in his throne while everybody else ran the kingdom, turned the tables, while all the drama and the intrigue unfolded, rather than dealing with the things that he needed to deal with, he let it go until it was too broken, until it cost not just him, but his sons, his family, his kingdom. Now it wasn't just his storyline that was broken, but it was other people's storylines that was broken. All because he was too tired, too distracted. He vacated that moral high ground a long time ago. He had played favorites. See, he didn't realize that the wise do now what the foolish do when they must. He waited until he had to, rather than doing now what would save him later. For us today, the story is don't be David. Do now, do today. Those small things that are in your life that right now are small things. Those small foxes grow up to be big problems. Those small habits, those little things that you think aren't going to harm anybody, those things build. And eventually, they'll cost you your whole kingdom. Those things that you think nobody knows about that you've never dealt with, those things are gonna show up in the lives of your children and in the lives of your grandchildren because you didn't deal with it for you. But now, You have the opportunity to deal with it for them, to help them write a better story. Maybe, maybe just maybe you've already had to sing that song. You've already had to pay that Piper. You've already had to face those consequences, but it's not too late for that next generation. It's not too late for you to wade back into that mess and to show your scars and to tell your story. So maybe, just maybe their story will be different. The stories don't be like David. But what's great about the story of David is we've all been like David. The point isn't so much that David was a man after God's own heart, because I think in this story, we see God's own heart, his heart of grace and of mercy and of compassion. See, we're all here today because of a promise that God made to David and that God kept, not because David was great. You saw the story, you know the scandal. David wasn't great. We're here today because God made a promise to David that he was going to establish his house forever, that there would be a king, a hero, a savior, a Messiah, a death killer, and that person, that king is Jesus. And that's why we are here, because God kept his promise to David, not because David deserved it, not because David was good, but because God is good. I don't know what your story is like, but I would bet money that it's broken just like David's. But no story is ever so broken that it is beyond God's ability to redeem it. No story, regardless of at what point you are in it, the beginning, the middle, nearing the end, whatever has been in the past, whatever is going on right now, no story is too too broken for our God to somehow use it. That's the point of David. God will be the one who sees it through. So often at this point, right, us pastors, we'll talk about how the ground is level at the foot of the cross because it is. that God offers us forgiveness for all of the things we've done, we're doing, we'll do. But God's love offers far more than forgiveness, far more than just a payment of debt. See, in his mercy, God sees us as we aren't, and by his grace, he makes it so. He saw David, not as he was, not as the one who slept with Bathsheba and killed Uriah, not as the one who sowed those seeds of discord and dysfunction into the lives of his children, but as the man that he chose, as a man after his own heart. And we are here today calling David that not because of David. Yeah, David tried and there was some nobility in that. Even though David fell so many times, he kept getting up and he kept pursuing, but we tell his story and we call him what we call him because of God's faithfulness. He is the one who will see it through. So wherever your story may be, whatever their story may be, it's not over yet. That's the point of the story. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that your faithfulness is not dependent upon my performance. That from the very beginning, you have drawn straight lines with crooked sticks all the time and that God, you're still doing it today. You do, you've done it with me and through my life, God, you've done it with so many of us here. And so God, I pray that in these next few moments, as we sing this truth, that you are our deliverer, that you are the one who will see it through, regardless of our condition, regardless of our circumstance, we can rest easy. We can get back up, God, time after time, no matter the knocks, no matter the bruises, no matter the curses, no matter our failures, no matter the shortcomings of others, because God, you are the one who holds the pen. You are the one who is writing the story, and you are the one who has promised to see it through. And what you promise you will, finish, not based on my performance, not based on my goodness, but yours. So God, I pray that today you would fuel our hearts and fan the flame of faith. In your son's name of Jesus. Amen.